0: Hi, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. My name is Mark Fraser, and I'm joined by two men who are wearing flannel that came off of Two Dead Men. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this shirt is so big. I'm so happy with it. I normally wear shorts, but I don't think that's very grunge, is it? It's not good for the people in the oh, front I row. Know. I know. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, hi. Yeah, we've just, we're going to ask you guys
2: uh, a couple of favours here. One is, uh, we need you to cheer extra loud because there's been a delay on the flights to Sri Lanka and Pakistan today. So as you can see, there's a few empty seats. Um, the other is- we're What pretty do you mean? Ha- it's really busy in here?
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's just a really big room so you can't hear the crowd. Um, but um, totally up for you guys, uh, chipping in, uh, observing, criticising, correcting our grammar. Uh, just stick your hand up and Mark being some kind of compere will uh, point you out. Um, maybe. Thanks immediately to David Scorteccia, um, because he's going to provide some live musical entertainment. And from the looks of it, he's just going to sit there the whole time. (laughs) Even even though that wasn't part of it. Um, So, I mean, David, if you want to go for a walk or get a drink or some food, maybe press-ups. Yeah. Some (laughs) (laughs) pull-ups.
0: You do like their pizzas, those Italians.
2: It's not just the
1: cliche. (laughs) Um, so
0: you guys going to introduce each other, or is that a thing? Oh yeah, so <laughs> over
1: here on my left is... I was going to get in first this time. Oh, oh. Alright. Uh, Chris Kusack, who was old when grunge happened.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so he's, uh, he had his midlife crisis when Nirvana happened. And even older when it happened again. I know, <laughs> exactly. Really struggling. So this is very nostalgic for, for you. Time, yeah. For a lot of us, this is history, but for him, it's just a throwback.
2: Uh, across the table from me is David Weaver, who preys on the elderly and their insecurities. <laughs> um, before the show, I, this won't be appreciated by the people doing the, the audio version of this, but uh, for those that turned up in person, you'll notice that we've tried to dress appropriately, uh, as, as advised by f- literally tens of thousands of videos on the internet. Um, we didn't do the makeup one, but that's because... Is that grunge
1: makeup one? Yeah,
2: did you want to see this? I
1: didn't see it. <laughs>
2: Dave doesn't follow us on Facebook. So <laughs> I don't
1: listen to them, I just turn up.
2: Uh, but yeah, before the show, we went to get changed, and so I went to get changed and came back out, and it's like, I thought you were going to get changed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very good, yes. This is actually my posh grunge outfit because uh, my mum I threw think, out mother stuff. I think that like Jesus and Meditation t shirts older than me. The Jesus Lizard t-shirt? I'm wearing the Jesus Lizard t-shirt, which isn't technically
2: grunge, but you know, they did a split with Nirvana, so that's ten tenuous. They uh, well, started already. But, <laughs> man, we're gonna go deep. Uh, but yeah, true story, the first day I wore this t-shirt was to play a gig with what was almost certainly a grunge band and sweated so much that I bleached out the top half of Jesus.
0: So
2: was just <laughs> I didn't know Sweat could do that. Your life <laughs> is just a metaphor, isn't it?
0: <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> apparently, Literally. Dundee. Sweat is extra potent. Mm. So, we're here for this Grunge mixtape thing, which may or may not be advised. That remains to be seen at this point. And we're, we've all picked a record each, which we'll get into at some point soon. I'm kind of distracted by the picture of Chad Kroger as <laughs> Jesus behind <laughs> you. Um, again, for the
2: people not, not here already. in person, the reason there was... Uh, Gregorian chant at the start is because we're projecting an image of Chad Kroger onto the back wall in reverence.
1: Our good lord. The Everybody,
2: good when man. they came in, crossed themselves and dabbed their fingers into some iron brew. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's give you a little rundown of what we're going to do today. So uh, as per our normal mixtape podcast, we'll be going into a sort of specific genre. Normal or Scene
2: inverted commas, yeah. given, given the last one.
1: Um, but... I sp- so I suppose we'll talk about what grunge is a little bit. Chris, yep. you've got some theories. <laughs> I've got some strong theories. As ever um, Chris has um, got That were derived
2: in person at the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. As you pointed out. Um, yeah, we're, we're going to break the show in two. We're going to take a wee break halfway so you can go to the bar and um, so that people that arrived late can creep in and try not disrupt what's going to be seamless. And during that, uh, Mr Skrtecha is going to perform... Something really quite exceptional that he's been working on... For literally ten minutes. <laughs> 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 overnight. Overnight. he got almost a day's warning. Um, so I have high high expectations. And Let's then start. after the
1: break, we'll be doing our three albums.
2: After the break, we're, each of us have uh, picked one record, as is our want, as was our want with the
1: new metal one. Um, mm. Although they are far better records than the new metal one. Careful. Mm. Careful. <laughs> uh, and then we will fight for one each. And then... At the end, you get to choose which one.
0: Yeah, whoever's, whoever's lost the most blood wins.
1: Yep, pretty much.
0: Yeah. Um, also, please excuse the sound of rustling paper, but I've... I've Who's
1: been Russell?
3: <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, that's, that's why oh, we that's why you bring you
0: here. This is why we have you, for a for top-quality banner like that.
3: I've,
2: I've been <laughs> at it big time with these notes. I used up half this jotter, uh, 21 pages of notes. So I've also got an additional sheet which is a guide to fucking my notes.
0: <laughs> I may need to take more painkillers before. <laughs> yeah, before so we start.
2: And Mark's not feeling very well because, in the kind of method approach to doing these podcasts, David and I persuaded them to do heroin for a couple of weeks. It was good to were like, after that. Yeah, couch. but you so. need to sober up for the podcast, so he's, he's currently in withdrawal, but yeah. he's, he's getting through. We've just got him hooked on painkillers instead. Um, because that's a much more modern American epidemic, yeah, I feel. It. Also, curiously enough, I got tagged in a post yesterday just to get this out the road, because I don't want to forget it. And they've been testing mussels, the seafood, off the coast of Seattle, and apparently the mussels test positive for traces of opioids. There you go. Yeah. Make it out what you will. I
1: have no idea what to say about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you say mussels and David automatically cheers.
1: So,
2: um,
0: what is grunge, Chris? Yes. So, Mr. Cusack, you know all the answers.
2: That's been the most contentious issue since we started even considering this, and everybody's got a different opinion, even uh, mis- Mr. David Campbell, who helped us set this up today, and immediately poo-pooed our suggestions oh. of what was grunge. I fucking hate grunge. <laughs> it's like David. a direct quote. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit late for that, David. we're about to start. Um, but yeah, what is grunge? And yeah, so I've got a pretty strong... Th- feeling about this? Uh-huh. Uh, and well, should we
1: ask people in the audience their favourite grunge band and then yeah, you can tell idea. them if they're right or wrong?
2: <laughs> Do you want to get any audience participation this this? Favourite grunge
1: band? Doesn't even know. Okay, doesn't well, even doesn't, doesn't know what music so is. A really good <laughs> 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 Favourite grunge band? Soundgarden? Favourite grunge band?
3: No uh, comment. Never <laughs> never no comment. Favourite
1: grunge band? Pilots. Interesting. He wants, yeah, <laughs> fair. It's a bit of a No, fine. no, that's, no, totally that's ex- cool. It's an acceptable. There's answer. no judgment here. Nirvana. Never. Oh, <laughs> I don't know who Nirvana yeah. is. Somebody
0: had to say, it
2: Do you have one?
3: Melvin, Melvin so Melvins, is, is yeah, a good answer fair.
2: and an interesting answer, and we'll, we'll go into I think that. Melvin's is I'm probably a good one. place to start, actually. No, I think a good place to start is for the gentleman that was like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> 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 Yeah, Melvins is an interesting one and Stone Temple Pilots is an interesting one because I think they're kind of diametrically opposed on the grunge spectrum. Kind of trying to work out where and when that happened. Obviously, grunge was like a northwest American northwest sound, like largely associated with Seattle, but not exclusively. Stone Temple Pilots were from San Diego. Where did it come from? Was like a a really kind of pivotal question early on, and like why was it so regional? And there were a lot of contributing factors to that. Uh, one of them was that there was a label up there, Sub Pop, which people just automatically associate with grunge, and Sub Pop. Made no secret of the fact that they'd kind of modelled themselves on the likes of SST and even Motown, and realised that some of the biggest movements, um, the most cult movements, were also kind of regionally biased. And so they just kind of looked to nurture this 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 sound and really help um, promote it. Uh, the, the, there's a lot of theories about why the sound was so, I say so distinct. It's not distinct because a lot of these bands sounded very very different but why there was a general uh, similarity between it. And one of them is that there was a, very simply like a, a geographical uh, issue. Um, much like Glasgow, and you know, those of you that are from here. Much like Glasgow, a lot of bands just didn't tour in Seattle. Um, so I think it's some like 25 hours to Minneapolis. And I think it's between like 10 and 12 hours down to San Francisco. and and further down the coast into Los Angeles. So a lot of bands, it was just so remote that when they were doing these American tours, especially sort of mid-level bands, they just wouldn't bother going to Seattle because it was such an expense and an inconvenience for one gig. I mean, they could go up to Vancouver, which is only a few hours, but then you're crossing the border and stuff. So the the musicians in Seattle became quite self-sufficient and the scene and the audiences rallied round those bands a lot more than maybe typically they would in bigger cities uh, like London and places like that over here. And we've kind of got the similar phenomenon, I think, in Glasgow, where, you know, because we miss out, so many people will come to London, maybe playing Leeds, maybe playing Manchester, but, you know, it's quite a jaunt for us to see some of the bands we're talking about actually. Melvins are pretty guilty of that. We've been trying to get them back to Scotland for ages and uh, it's almost impossible. Um, so Seattle kind of. Was involved in the same process, and a, a lot of those uh, young groups shared members, shared audiences, and kind of shared a bit of a, an ideology. I mean, Soundgarden, for example, were the first band from the grunge movement to sign a major label, and the audiences, or not all of them, but a large portion of their audience quickly fell out of them. You know, the, the, they went on tour with Guns N' Roses, and people just immediately a lot of the punks that had followed Soundgarden. Uh, were just appalled by that, they just uh, couldn't understand why they'd they'd taken the bait. Um, It was quite a tight-knit scene. Uh, When you actually look musically at the kind of forefathers though of the bands, uh, a really really key band is uh, called Green River. And Green River was a band from, like, uh, 1984 to 88. Um, And it, as well as other members, it's kind of key because it featured Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard, who went on to be in Pearl Jam. And it also featured Mark Aaron and Steve Turner, who went on to be in Mudhoney. And I think even just superficially, those two bands represent really, really different styles of grunge music. And indeed, when we were talking to Davey beforehand, he was like, you know, is Pearl Jam even grunge? You know, in a lot of minds, Pearl Jam is grunge, but then in other, a lot of other people's minds, Mudhoney is grunge, and that's where a lot of the kind of fictitious kind of discussion about the genre kind of originates. Um, as it happened, um, there was a guy. There was also a guy in that band, by the way, called uh, Bruce Fairweather, uh, who joined a band called Love Battery and played with Jason Finn and Jason Finn is one of the guys from President Presidents of, of the USA.
3: Moving to the country, I'm going to eat a
1: lot of peaches. Moving to the country, going to eat a
3: lot of peaches. Moving to the country, going to eat a lot of peaches. I took a little nap with a little twist.
2: Squished your They're kind of one of those bands that they come from Seattle, but people often forget. Oh yeah, they were, they were a, a Seattle group as well as was uh, Jimi Hendrix, was from Seattle as well. And it's, like, so it's weird, because for a region that had other people that came from it, but because they weren't part of this movement, folk just get, seems to kind of slip out their minds. So there was other stuff going on. Fraser Crane, <laughs>
1: big Seattle influence on me. More of
0: part of the jazz scene, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> the soft jazz. He yeah. was from Boston, though. jazz was in
2: Boston. Oh
1: yeah, that's true. He relocated for yeah, the, relocated for yeah, the series. Yeah, he relocated for the series,
2: yeah. That's Sick. And his band uh, <laughs> Toss salads and the scrambled eggs. Yeah. Um, Sonic Youth played a big part in that scene as well. And actually, Green River were one of the, the, the main initial points of contact for the Seattle scene. With Sonic Youth. The Sonic Youth were big fans of them, and they played together on tour. And that in itself had an influence on the musicians. Cause Sonic Youth were obviously really big in the, the 80s in the States. Were one of the big independent bands. But they kind of sounded like grunge. Yeah. They had some really heavy at least noisy, uh, unfussy, and kind of shambolic approaches to music, which became quite associated with it, especially with Nirvana. And it was Green River's album, Come On Down. Uh, was it an album? Was it a long EP? That's kind of retrospectively considered to be the like the first grunge album, even though Melvins released uh, their, their uh, Osma just a, a few months later. Like Green River got in there just a wee bit earlier. They then went to record a a record called Dry as a Bone, and it was the first proper release ever on sub-pop. Until that point, they'd only done compilations. We'll come back to those compilations, because they were really pretty critical. Um, But by October, the band had split, because as kind of foreshadowed everything, Stone, Gossard, and Jeff Ament wanted to sign to a major, wanted to go for a kind of bigger, say metallic, Steve Turner called it a a metal sound, but they were going for like more of a stadium sound whereas Mark Arm and Steve Turner were kind of slightly appalled by that Mark Arm wanted the things to stay independent wanted it to stay kind of small and manageable and true to the kind of punk scene they'd come from and so the record they'd been working on rehab though ended up just being released posthumously the band broke up because of these kind of different objectives that they held and i think it's a good kind of microcosm for the division in the scene anyway so going off in one direction, you had Mark Arm and Steve Turner and Mud and guys like Matt Lukins coming from the Melvins, and he was involved with Mud Honey. And then Nirvana, Kurt Cobain had been jamming with the Melvins and roadied for them and was a, like very closely affiliated with the Melvins. So you had this branch going off to one side who were basically punks. They were basically you know slowed down like you know punk Seven Inches played at the wrong speed, and that's kind of what they were trying to do. And they were you know very anti-police and a lot of the rhetoric, you know. Vandalism is as beautiful as a rock in a cop's face. And um, Mark Arm had actually been a witness at a very kind of famous um, incident with a <laughs> concerning a band called the U-Men. The U-Men were one of the really early bands in Seattle. Uh, and this book that I'm about to hold up, which is called Everybody Loves Our Town, by a writer called Mark Yarm, no relation to Mark Arm. And you're like, yeah, your name's totally different. <laughs> <Just 'cause> <laughs> 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 but. Um, it's a really good book and it talks about, early on it talks about this gig by the U-men where they actually, there was like a trough of, like a, they played in a park and there was like a little kind of waterway in front of them so they filled the waterway up with lighter fluid and <laughs> like tossed in uh, a flame during their show which ended up exploding a lot bigger than they wanted and the families that were watching, rather than panicking just see, apparently got a little bit feral and just like so invigorated by the sight of fire that <laughs> <laughs> they it was like a small riot, and the police the police weighed in with uh, billy clubs and started like bashing people over the head and arresting people. It's quite, apparently quite a pivotal uh,
1: moment. For that sounds like any night out in Inverness. <laughs> That's
3: when you make that uh, trek. just the sight of
1: fire once a year. <laughs> <laughs> very primal.
2: When you make the trek from exactly yeah, no I mean, What's fire like in onness How does that go
0: down? Uh, it's very rare, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, we don't see it often. You got the wheel, though, didn't you?
1: We got the wheel, yeah, just to get out of there.
2: <laughs> um, so that, that, that concert turned out to be quite a pivotal experience for us, because a lot of the people that went on to start these bands were in the crowd, including Mark Arm, not Mark Yarm. Was um, Mark Yarm in the crowd? Mark Yarm was not in the crowd. Mark Yarm is a writer, as opposed to Mark Arm, who's from Seattle and in the band Mudhoney. Oh. <laughs> Let's <Yeah>. restate
0: that. <laughs> I know, but was he in the crowd as well? <laughs>
3: no. No? Okay. No.
0: I just thought I'd ask. Apparently his name's quite similar.
2: His name is pretty similar, but he was apparently no relation. We will state that multiple times during the course of this as well, just to do honour to the book. Um, but the, that kind of was part of this early animosity that they had for the cops as well. You know, coming from the more provincial, local towns as well, the kids were like smoking dope and getting high, and there was a lot of that. And that branch of grunge seemed to be a lot more anti-authoritarian. On the other side of it, uh, Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard decided they were going to start a band called Mother Love Bone, who are. Whoa, they're fucking dreadful.
3: I love my I love motherfucker and
1: was my It's like hey, wait enough for that. Well, it was because there was a lot of stuff like I suppose you've got like big alternative bands at the time. You had grunge, but then on the other side you had the funk explosion and Red Hot Chili Peppers and uh, Faith No More, and I suppose Mother Love Bone were trying to do both and uh, f- failing. I mean, yeah. it
2: it, it kind of sounds like a softer version of Guns and Roses. I feel yeah, I,
0: I, it just sounds it sounds like uh, like the sort of landfill grunge stuff. It just kind of. Very sadly, Andrew Wood, the
2: singer, died. Um, the only problem is, Andrew Wood's death then brought his Temple of the Dog. Andrew Wood was a roommate of uh, Chris Cornell, as well as obviously a bandmate of Chris Cornell. Stone Gossard. Chris Cornell is the singer in this lady's favorite grunge band, Soundgarden. And so Temple of the Dog were like a supergroup, an ex-person as well. Supergroup seems an like ex-person. <laughs> T- uh, Temple of the Dog were kind of set up to commemorate Andrew Wood. Chris Cornell had been writing a bunch of songs and he wanted to get together the musicians from Mother Love Bone to, you know, honour his friend, which, you know, genuinely, they were they were pretty upset about it. Cornell was obviously quite a, an emotional guy and he was a friend so young, hit the guy pretty hard. So Andrew Wood actually died, I think it was about two days before Mother Love Bone's debut album, Apple, was released which, again, was part of why uh, people really wanted to try and do something to commemorate him. How did uh, I? He died of an overdose, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, and then was followed by Temple of Dog. David, you going to pull up some Temple of Dog? Broadway wants maybe, Temple of
1: Dog. Maybe Hungry. Hungry would be a classic. Yeah, I can do that. I listened to this this week and didn't enjoy it at all. The
3: blood is on the table and the are choking well, I'm going hungry
0: I was suffering a coma there. <laughs> uh, 91.
1: 1991,
2: Temple of the Dog. Yeah. Um, Pete Grunge.
0: Pete Grunge.
1: Grunge. Yeah, so I mean, I suppose we're talking about late 80s, early 90s here, aren't we? It's very of an era.
2: Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, like Soundgarden... Yeah. Were, were nin- <laughs> 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 Someone had to get in first. <laughs> So Soundgarden were actually started in 1984, which kind of blew my mind out, actually. Is that still playing? Play? you turn that off? <laughs> <laughs> <Just a> little <laughs> of the tones, of <laughs> uh, Soundgarden were 1984, which was pretty strange uh, to me, because I'd always assumed, I guess, when they peaked was when they arrived, but uh, it clearly wasn't. And I think it's, it's actually interesting to talk about that in general, because all these bands were happening before grunge really was uh, making a big mark. So I, I was... Pretty curious, because you, know, you you take a straw poll, people are like, oh, grunge is like 91, 92. Uh, not at all. Like, so I, I kind of went back through like Billboard 200 as part of this kind of thorough research that I did um, to try and work out you know what were the top albums. Those and so like 90, 1990, and top acts that year were like Phil Collins, Vanilla Ice, Milli Vanilli, MC Hammer. And in 91, I was like, OK, you start to see the grunge ones. But it's like Guns N' Roses, Metallica, Van Halen, Skid Row, a lot more rock It's like the kind of cock rock era um nwa were there as well U two were there michael jackson it wasn't until 1992 that the first grunge stuff started to really show up um, never mind hit number one a couple of times but then it was stuff like michael bolton billy ray cyrus uh in 93 nirvana again and then Verses by pearl jam made an appearance but that was alongside like whitney houston cypress hill so you're ready at like 93 uh, and bear in mind that Cobain died in 94 and from that point on the, the the music press started to get pretty cynical about why grunge was still hanging about it was pretty late before it started to actually make big money in 94 it kind of happened so you had Alice in Chains uh, with jar of Flies we- Savannah Unplugged who was our number one record, uh, Soundgarden, Super Unknown, uh, Stone Temple Pilots, uh, although it was purple, not core, uh, and Pearl Jam's Vitality. Yes, Metalogy also apparently made the biggest jump in chart history uh, ever, uh, from like 173 to number one in one week.
1: What for? Like a single or something? Uh, Did somebody die that year or something?
2: Green. Oh yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, well, apparently um, Eddie Vedder was pretty uh, pretty sore about that. Um, Eddie yeah. Vedder didn't take that very well because mm-hmm. albeit Nirvana had kind of mocked Pearl Jam earlier on in their career, they'd uh, actually kind of mended things with Vedder towards the end of his life and had come out and said that he was kind of ashamed about the comments he'd made about him, that Eddie Vedder was like, a thoroughly decent human being. Um, but Vitalogy took a really big jump at that point, it's, and it's actually a pretty good record. I mean, I personally can't stand 10, and versus it's pretty cheesy. It's like a kind of heavier hooting the Blowfish. But um, by by Vitalogy, they were doing some pretty interesting music. The, the sleeve art in the album is amazing as well. Really, really beautiful. Um, and it did seem to reflect a kind of darkening of the mood around Cobain's death. The guys from Mudhoney said that they'd been really popular in the UK up until about 93, 94, and then when Kurt Cobain died, the album they brought out after that, they were like, the reception was totally hostile. Like, it was, and it didn't seem to be based, a lot of the reviews weren't really based on like, how good is this record or otherwise, it was, why are you guys still playing music? Cricket dead. Mm. <laughs> the mud and are still going. So it's like Mark Arm's pretty sore about that. Uh, sore mm. arm. Why well, do you like think you a worm <laughs> turns so. though? A bit uh, like yeah. you, Mark. <laughs> sore arm, eh? Mark's sore arm. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's not Mark Yarm, by the way. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, he wasn't there at the start. So, um, I was going to say, so why do you think it changed so, so powerfully? Because it seems like it was, a hu- it was obviously a huge thing mm. that year. And the fans, obviously, it was selling records by the bucket load, it would appear.
2: Well, uh, I think one of the big problems was that the bands around grunge started to, I mean, with any genre that explodes, there's a hell of a lot of like stuff, mushrooms, that sprout up around it, you know? And um, we've touched on a lot of those names when we were doing the notes for this. You know, um, We actually compiled a for a list over beers, I seem to remember. Yeah, we did. It was, it was a long... 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there was a kind of second wave of stuff that came out on the back of that, which was bands like um, Bush, oh.
0: um, <laughs> yeah, Life of Agony. Have we got to this point already? I thought we were going to wait a bit longer before we get this. By the way, seriously. Life of
2: Agony, I didn't know this. I was looking them up and... Uh, I listened to Life of Agony as a bit of a guilty pleasure when I was younger. The frontman Keith Caputo Keith is, now, Caputo, yeah, I remember him. is yeah. now Mina Caputo, mm-hmm. transgender, mm-hmm. and was quite uh, quite a big um, quite a big shock to the metal community, yeah. especially that they moved in. That was like uh, pretty fascinating. I don't I, I, d- I, d-
0: I don't think I would have personally called them a grunge band, to be honest. But what do I know? <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's pretty grungy. That is very grungy.
2: Um, so th- there was a whole glut of bands that kind of sprung up around grunge, and I think people started to get really sick of it really quick. In the UK, there was like Bivouac, there was called Paw, there was uh, Curb Dog. Yeah. So I think basically what happened was that the media started to get pretty sick of it pretty fast. There was also, uh, we spoke about a phenomenon as well, that the reach of grunge seemed to go a lot faster than just the reach of like, hard rock. There was a sudden injection into the charts of, I mean, some of the stuff that we actually spoke about there, but there's a sudden injection of stuff like Alanis Morissette, which is like the number seven biggest selling album of all time. Yeah, Jagged Little Pill. Yeah. um, Bearing in mind that Alanis Morissette was singing like the national anthem in football stadiums and was by all accounts looking like she was going to be like some sort of Celine Dion type character and was redirected into this kind of alternative persona. Um, You started to see the grunge thing reflected in pop music and even, like, I mentioned them, Hootie and the Blowfish, and Mike and the Mechanics. And there was, like, this ultra-light version of, like, the grunge aesthetic, rustic people in, like, check shirts. And
1: Deep Blue Something Breakfast at Well, we spoke about that, yeah. Like a, lot it's a fucking crash, yeah, crash test. test. Oh, yeah. mm. and so there mm. <laughs> Four non-blondes. Mm. Oh, when yeah. was that? Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Actually, there's a name for this kind of music I read about this on, on my period the other day. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I'm
1: going to have mm. to find it. Yeah, it was also a fashion thing as well.
3: Like yeah,
2: but, but can another one is Natalie and Brulia. And few people don't like, be slagging
1: Natalie now. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Careful aside from the fact that she was, was she not going out with Daniel Johns from the Mighty Silver Chair. Daniel Johns was mm-hmm. going Mighty out with Natalie and Sil- Brulia. Pretty it's certain that was a thing. Yeah. Well they're both Australian. But yeah, so there was a, there was a, a it started to bleed into like pop music. Stuff like Counting Crows was really big as well. Oh And crows were like this sort of. You could, yeah, okay. They maybe came for stuff like REM a little bit, but there was a much more of a grungier feel to that, that that kind of thing. So people were just getting sick to the back teeth of it. Like, I mean, I can't say I blame them. I remember being about at the time, and it, it was just saturated. And you said as well there was a, there was a there was a fashion thing. There was a, a sudden <laughs> fixation on grunge chic that happened pretty quickly. I mean, and that was when
1: like Gap was at its biggest. You know, that sort of mid-90s, we can uh, get aspirational people to dress like a slacker as well. Um, so here's, here's a, a
2: quality clip that I want to throw out for the crowd here. Yeah. Um, I found a couple of things on grunge fashion, check it out.
1: So this week on How To Dress, we're talking about grown-up grunge. Now, that might strike fear into your heart if you were there the first time around with Nirvana and Kirkben, Courtney Love, and all, all those types, and you wore Doc Martens and big floral dresses. But I'm afraid it is back. Um, so, how do you wear it if you're a grown up? I mean, it's go- there's going to be plaid all over the high street, camouflage print. I mean,
2: I blame That's a woman in a knitted sweater with a shirt under it being told. <laughs> 325 pounds. 325 pound cashmere sweater. <laughs> so, when's this from? Uh, this is from I think the third iteration of grunge and from the time itself we had a pretty fascinating demonstration. Check this out. Designer
3: Anna Suigo's grunge. She reinterprets the street looks worn by the fans of Seattle's guitar grinding music group. People are into a more individual look. It's not about status or uh, dressing for uh, to show off your money. It's it's more to show off like what it is that you're feeling, what
2: you're trying to express. So that's. Um, I'll skip it forward to the, the picture of Naomi Campbell because nothing screams grunge like a woman with a little butterflies stuck in her nipples.
1: Yeah, that's that's what Kurt died for, right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he wanted. <laughs>
2: yeah, so like, Mudhoney felt the backlash against grunge because grunge was just, frankly, just saturating everything, and things started to go south pretty quickly. Um, as we said, like. The side of grunge that they represented, that Nirvana represented, that the Melvins represented, had sprung up from that much dirtier origin. It sprung up from stuff like uh, Black Flag. Uh, they had an album called My War, and the second side of My War is credited as being a huge influence on those guys because it was so much slower and so much heavier.
3: Nothing.
2: So um, I think it goes without saying, quite severely influenced by Black Sabbath at the mm-hmm. time as
0: well. And That's something I'm going to pick up as well later on. Yeah, I think there's a lot of Black Sabbath and a lot of grunge stuff. Um, especially riff-wise. You can hear pretty much everywhere. Which is mm-hmm. why I struggle sometimes thinking of some of the stuff as grunge, because it just kind of sounds like sludgy kind of metal to me. But again, what do I know? <laughs> <laughs>
1: there we go. There
0: were also, I uh, kind of touched on it earlier on, like
2: one of the big factors in popularising grunge was sub pop, and sub pop were they pulled a master stroke at the time. Kinda, the actual genesis of sub pop's kind of interesting. It's more interesting than I thought it was to, to begin with. Um, it was a guy called Bruce Pavitt uh, in the early 80s started a fanzine uh, called Subterranean Pop, based out of uh, Evergreen State College, which is a place that's recently been in the news because of Brett Weinstein and the, the um, Days of Absence controversy. And I think by, by by episode five of this fanzine, they were like they were shifting two thousand copies, which is mental. Like, at what point do you stop being a fanzine? <laughs> um, but they were given. There was a cassette that came with it, and a, a compilation cassette of different bands, and so like I said, two thousand copies of this cassette it's nothing to sniff at. Considering you can get into the charts now, pretty high in the charts, where you know ten thousand uh, of anything. In nineteen eighty six, Pavot started Sub Pop as a, a record label, and. 86 was a big year because uh, not only did he release a thing called Sub Pop 100, but there was a uh, CZ Records uh, also in the Northwest released a thing called the Deep Six compilation. Now, the Deep Six compilation had Melvin, Soundgarden, Green River, Skin and that band of Human, that uh, mentioned from earlier with the riot in the park. And Sub Pop 100 uh, was introduced by Steve Albini. Had Scratch Acid, which was the guys that went on to be Jesus Lizard, uh, The Wipers, Sonic Youth, Naked Ray Gun, Skinny Puppy, weirdly enough, and Shonen Knife for uh, Japan. Um, Now, although that's not a lot of Seattle bands, those are a lot of the bands that people associate with grunge that were kind of peripheral to it, then including bands like Butthole Surfers and things like that as well, who were, I think, based out of Minneapolis at the time. The the Sub Pop 100 uh, compilation was hugely influential. Um, Deep Six predated it, but Sub Pop 100 just went, and still is a total cult classic. And they followed that in 1988 by Sub Pop 200, which is a bit more typically what you think of with Seattle, which was Tad, Soundgarden, Green River, Beat Happening, uh, Fastback, Screaming Trees, and uh, The Walkabouts. And so this label started to try and corner this idea of a particular scene and a particular sound. Um, in 87, a guy called Jonathan Poneman invested $20,000 into Sub Pop. Sub Pop was a really small thing at the time, it had done a couple of very low-level releases. Poneman was a huge Soundgarden fan, he was one of a, D- as a DJ at the time, and he really wanted Soundgarden to get a proper release. And that was, his, that was basically his motivation for getting involved with Sub Pop, so they, they incorporated the company in 88, 88 I think it was. And went on to release uh, early Soundgarden stuff. Uh, they also established a thing called the Singles Club where people just paid a subscription and they would get sent out vinyls uh, on a monthly basis, a uh, choice single. And those are so collectible now, like
1: insanely collectible. The first isn't? one was Love Buzz. Yeah,
3: that's right. First so. ever. Mm.
0: That now, I've been saying.
2: Well, Two Pure did that down in Wales for a while. They did that with bands like McCluskey, and I think PJ Harvey was in Two Pure as well. But um, they tried to copy that. But as I said, like those guys basically identified early on that there was a geographical advantage in having yeah. a, a sound for a label. Uh, and albeit they did work with people from you know further afield, so they did, you know even just affiliates like Dinosaur Jr. and things like that. Um, they were pretty canny they also had another idea which we maybe take for granted but they realized that for a lot of musicians in america because the market's so big and it's so expensive a good way to do it is to conquer the uk and work backwards and Jimi hendrix did that and even bands like dandy warhols did that as well they actually flew a guy out called everett true who's since become really closely tied with stories about nirvana and stories about the seattle scene they flew him out he worked for melody maker at the time and just kind of gave him a tour and he did this huge in-depth piece about what was going on in Seattle, uh, including interviews with people. And that was massive over here. That was like a massive breakthrough uh, in in the media over here who started to learn about grunge and learn about what was happening in Seattle, and it was a total coup for Sub Pop because they were immediately placing themselves at at the top of that in in everybody's mind. Alongside that, there was um, a small but really, really important group of people um, who were contributing to the aesthetic of grunge. There's a producer called Jack and Dino who did everything really to start with. I think he did 75 different recordings for Sub Pop to try and make sure there was a consistency in the sound. So he did, like, he did Bleach, obviously. Um, he did some Soundgarden stuff and he, he, he worked with a lot of other people including people at like L7, who also became associated with it even though they're from L.A. Oh,
3: should be proud huh.
2: Jack and Dino was key to them trying to kind of capture this sort of sense of like what it was. And so you kind of start to see how this insular movement was forming. You start to see like when you consider that these bands had shared common members in the early days. Uh, Melvins, especially, had slowed down their sound because they were actually a really fast band when they started. Melvins on the scene were like known for being the fastest group. And just because they're Melvins and they're so fucking obstinate, um, they decided let's make everyone as sludgy and st- kind of lumping as we possibly
3: can I grow the piston I seal the raptor
2: Various elements are all kind of aligning. There's also a really, really important factor in uh, the form of a guy called Charles Peterson, who's a photographer. Um, and I've got some images here. You'll definitely recognize them from the work at the time. So Charles Peterson took some of the most famous images to come out of grunge. This one is Mudhoney, and that's the cover of Superfuzz Big Muff. It's a good album. Yeah, That's actually Fagazzi, Guy Pechoto, on one of their Northwest tours. Chris Cornell, I think that's the, f- that's the cover of Screaming Life, maybe? One is Soundgarden Records, that's in the front as well. It's a really famous crowd diver I think at an Nirvana show. Both of these, in fact, I think are in the muddy banks of the Wish Garden. But even in the, the, the art, in the, in the, you can see the aesthetic forming in that. Mm. And it's actually it's kind of important as well not to overlook them. There's a guy in the UK called Steve Gulick. Steve Gullick didn't do so much of the live photography, but he took some of the really famous uh, images of the time of the bands. Mm. We'll put these on the Facebook page for people that are listening. And Steve Gulick was actually British and contributed to that kind of Domination of the UK scene by Grunge, that sudden uptick in interest, and that bled back over the Atlantic. Mudhoney were huge over here, Sonic Youth were huge, but any band they brought across got huge. They toured with whole. there was like all kinds of things. Eh, sorry, Mudhoney toured with Hole. Oh, there was a kind of passing the baton thing going on, and Grunge, as it got bigger over here, people took more and more notice of it in the States. It's also kind of interesting about you see the band Bush, even though they were about concurrently, and people kind of talk about them as being sort of rubbish. <laughs> Rub- <laughs> Rubbish. Um, they kind of talk about them as being a second generation band, but they can't really weren't. They were about from
3: 91 or 92. <laughs>
2: They just were obviously a band that were aping something that they saw but they weren't the only ones but bush is <laughs> bush have sold 10 million records 10 million records and at the time they were playing they, they, i think they'd sold some like 2 million records in the states um with 16 stone and over here they were playing in pubs which was astonishing like there was just such a difference that they took over there as a british grunge band so it was a kind of pretty confused state of affairs so and dino Peterson, Gulick, and then Pavitt and Poneman, who I think I've I've said openly, you know, um, it was a a beautiful coincidence in coming together of circumstances that brought grunge to to the fore and helped Sub Pop cement its reputation. They said Peterson was there to capture the the look and Dino was there to capture the sound and me and Bruce were here to exploit the local community. And they're pretty comfortable with that and they certainly did. Sub Pop was kept afloat for Probably the best part of a decade by the, the, the royalties it got off, and Nevermind. Sub Pop actually has had a renewed lease of life, but in a completely different fashion now. It's, it's, I mean, it's had some very successful acts in the last, you know, 15 years: Fleet Foxes, The Shins, uh, Sleater-Kinney, Flight of the Concords are on Sub Pop for some reason. Band of Horses, Foles, uh, Beach House. <laughs> Of reinvented their musical style, but a lot of that was only enabled by the fact that we were able to keep going as an organization because of the revenue they got from from Nevermind. Um, I do believe they actually, Pavitt, who started it, quit in protest at one point as well um, because Sub Pop sold 49% of its shares to Warner Brothers, kind of forfeiting that kind of truly independent thing, albeit they still had 51% majority stake. But they fell out about that, and it took about seven years for Pavitt and Pullman to talk again. So another factor in where this grunge, uh, grunge sound was coming from. But a lot of the bigger bands that were the more polished side of that spectrum, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, were not really involved with sub-pop. Sub-pop was dealing with the sort of murkier stuff, and Soundgarden kind of straddled that a wee bit. Soundgarden were the sort of arena rock band, um, but far more interesting than I think people give them credit for. Um, we'll talk about Soundgarden a wee bit more later on, but amongst their... Uh, cheesy, felt like incredibly high-pitched crooning. They also had a lot of really gloomy, dark, heavy stuff and a lot more going on. But uh, also, just a, an interesting fact, if you submitted your demo to Subpop, and <laughs> I know this from experience, if you submitted your, your demo to Subpop and were unsuccessful, they sent you a letter that started, Dear Loser.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, guys. That's, that actually stayed with me. It's a fairly thorough background of grunge, there, Chris. Thanks, thanks very Uh, much. I I need a I need to get my breath back and take a a drink. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Neil Young's the godfather of grunge. Look at him; (laughs) he just looks like a grungy man. (laughs) But like a lot of grungy folk, took Neil Young influences. uh, You know, because there's a lot of sort of distorted guitars and. flannel shirts involved in the 70s and 80s, Neil Young stuff. Uh, and he also just didn't really give a fuck about anything. And then you know, he's got uh, Pearl Jam covering him. And
3: then,
1: of course, uh, paraphrasing him in his suicide note as well. So, you know, Neil Young's always kind of there as a big grunge influence. I love Neil Young. I tried to kind of subdivide the word grunge into some slightly
2: more uh, accurate terms. Oh, Jesus. why?
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't know, I was bored. Uh, it was about 3 You wrote 21 you need chapters to be busier, notes so you're you are bored. N- you need to do more stuff. Yeah, I
2: thought, like, Mudhoney, we could refer to them as garunge garage. Oh, right, okay. You
1: see where I'm going with that?
2: Uh, Melvin's was kind of very muddy, so we call him grunge. Fuck <laughs>
3: off. Oh, no, it's like sludgy
2: grunge, so it could be slunge. Creed, and I'd actually written Stone Devil Pilots, so don't take this personally. I thought we'd call him
3: grunge. <laughs>
2: Are you having a stroke? <laughs> <laughs> um, and this was my favourite one. Bush, I thought we could call Clunge. <laughs> Yeah. and that 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 works in two levels that's fine i'm happy with that <laughs> um that, no i think there's one more thing that we haven't mentioned that, um it kind of goes kind of concurrently with a with the fashion uh, aspect has anybody seen the film singles right so if you haven't seen the film singles and for the record that was one person <laughs> <laughs> way at the back we could barely see them up there in the nosebleeds um yeah, the film Singles came out in 1992. It's by the guy Cameron Crowe, who did uh, *What did he do? Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Jerry Maguire, uh, Almost oh, Famous, famous yeah. which is actually about him traveling with bands. But Singles is, oh, it's fucking terrible. But it, it's basically a whole bunch of people's romantic relationships set to the, the backdrop of grunge in, in Seattle in 92. It's got Matt Dillon as like the, the main actor and Bridget Fonda. Uh, as the main actress Um, Cameron uh, Crowe after they made it apparently Warner were so happy with it that they wanted to make a TV series of singles but it never really took uh, or it never really got off the boards except Cameron Crowe maintains that it did and apparently Friends he, according to Cameron Crowe sprung out of uh, singles, this kind of like various couples in an overlapping drama thing. And there is nothing more 90s than grunge and friends. That is, that <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> that is the grunge, that is the 90s singularity right there. Um, but there's some interesting things about uh, singles. It's not great, but if you want to flick through it, um, the band in it is called Citizen Dick. <laughs> <laughs> which was made up mostly... There's a scene in a diner, and you can see that the band is mostly just Jam sitting there looking gormless. All the clothes that Matt Dillon wears, he just borrowed off Jeff Ament. So as ridiculous as they look, they were just Jeff Ament's actual wardrobe. Chris Cornell's in it. Alison Chains are in it. They perform in one scene. Uh, There's a whole bunch of song names in it for Citizen Dick that were just ridiculous, throwaway song names, and Chris Cornell apparently decided to challenge himself and write a bunch of tunes to these names, uh, which includes Spoonman. That's why it's such a fucking stupid subject for (laughs) us all, because Chris Cornell promised them that he was going to do it, and he he wrote Spoonman. And if you watch the film, there's a bit where someone's playing an acoustic guitar in the background and it's uh, Spoonman, or an early version of Spoonman that he's playing. Uh, They also had a tune in it called Touch Me, I'm Dick, (laughs) 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 giving a little nod to Mudhoney's first single. Which was also, I think, the first the first record put out after um, Sub Pop Incorporated. There you go. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a pretty comprehensive rundown on the mess. That I'm was just going, gonna, uh, going on in the northwest at the time.
1: I sm- I, like in researching this, and it was very similar to how I did my degree. So I just went onto Wikipedia,
3: <laughs>
1: and I thought this said, and it's really summed it up perfectly. Although most grunge bands had disbanded or faded away from view by the late 1990s, they influenced modern rock music as their lyrics brought socially conscious issues into pop culture and added introspection and an exploration of what it means to be true to oneself. That's a link you can click. Be true to oneself. Where does that go? dare not do that. Does that link go to a cult? (laughs) I'm not going to click it. But... Grunge was also an influence on later genres such as post-grunge, e.g. Creed and Nickelback, mm-hmm. and new metal, e.g. Corn and Limp Bizkit. Post-grunge, a.k.a. neo-grunge. Well, I mean, this is what Wikipedia says here. So, <laughs> yeah, there was basically grunge influenced us to be miserable and inward. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting
3: because Limp Bizkit, again,
2: right? g- g- <laughs> steady going through those. I mean. Yeah, I mean, the legacy of grunge is shameful. When you get into the second and third generation of the bands that it produced, like Creed being second generation, weirdly enough, because I think they actually brought out their first record in 97 mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, and obviously Nickelback, um, peace be upon him. Um,
3: <laughs> but,
2: I mean, there was, I mean, we, we had a list of some pretty horrendous, I think I've got this I I think do I told you this. Before, remember this, but David.
1: Back in high school, I was like basically the only person that could play guitar. Oh yes. Yeah. So when there was a, um, a talent contest, and any kid in the few years below me had to do a song, then I'd get asked to come and play the guitar. And this little one kid, Ross, oh he got bullied so hard. But he was a little little chubby guy with curly hair, and he wanted to cover "How You Remind Me" by Nickelback in front of the whole school and I had to play guitar for him. And he, for that four minutes, he was a king. The, like, the, the crowd in school absolutely loved him. And I had a terrible time playing that song, I fucking hate it. <laughs> oh, I fucking hate Nickelback.
2: So, um, well, actually, so the second iteration of Grunge, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt, included people like Live and Matchbox 20, mm. um, Bivouac, stuff like that. The third iteration of Grunge, uh, second to third Stradlin, David, you, you came up with some brilliant names in this, and for someone that claims not to actually like or know a lot of it, grunge, we were sitting and he was just, we had to stop him at one point because the tone of the conversation got so low. But um, we had three doors down puddle of mud, you're, you're going to have to hold. Puddle of mud with two Ds. Don't, on the don't get angry too soon because it's going to get worse. <laughs> um, stained. Uh-huh. Apparently Huber are listed as it, but I think H- Hubastank were like that crossover yeah, with new metal. They're, yeah, they're on their way to
0: Incubus as well. Three of a Dead Man, Chevelle, Three of a Dead Man, Feather. Seether, Stone Sour. England. I would say Stone Sour. Yeah, that was my choice. No, Not my choice, but my so, <laughs> so my suggestion. Pr- <laughs> so proud of it. I'm so um, proud of it.
2: But yeah, uh, there was some really horrendous stuff came off the back of that, and is in some ways still with us. I mean Nickelback's. Record sales are unbelievable. Like, I mean, uh, in in both senses, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that they exist, but in the fact that they are just
0: enormous. Like to this day, enormous. I mean, oh, your sister owns a copy of that Silver so Side Up. Doesn't even like rock music.
2: Does she drive a BMW?
0: No. <laughs> she lives in Norway. Because it's to- Denmark, sorry. it's absolutely that kind of album. Um,
2: oh, I've got one more thing I want to throw in here, just for pure. Mm-hmm. Macabre thrills, right? So we mentioned Silverchair earlier on, and Daniel Johns' relationship with uh, Natalie and Brilliant, so on, and so on. So, on. Um, so I was like, "What the fuck is what's happening with Silverchair?" I know he had some illness issues. They um, went so did not? Well, let's let's see what happened <laughs> with Silverchair. Yeah. So a little reminder here, right? Check out this first
3: line.
2: As good as it was way back then. Um, So that was Silverchair. uh, What year was that? I don't even know what year that was. David?
0: (laughs) 2000 and... No, nineteen eighty-eight
2: maybe. Thereabouts. Um and looking every part Nirvana as well, especially the drummer. Like if you were trying to impersonate Dave Grohl in Nirvana, you couldn't do it much better. So here's Silver Chair about five years ago. This is sensational. I'll skip a little bit forward. And you're thinking it's gonna kick in, right?
3: Sparks and am training <laughs> for thought I
2: Hang on, you're thinking. No, but it's going to kick in, they're just taking their time. I can't wait for the riff. You can't wait to get a fucking shirt on. Here we go, guys.
0: But it actually,
2: hard as it is to believe, gets a little bit worse for Daniel Post-
0: Just let him do it he man. It's a hard life. You're so
1: judgmental. <laughs> so last
2: year, Daniel was like, right, Silver done, guys. I got the message, finally. Has he done a solo pop thing? He has. It's not a solo pop thing, but it's, it's, it's special. It's his dreams featuring Daniel Johns, and viewer discretion is advised. <laughs> <laughs> What's going to come is a smashing bit of facial acting, that's what's going to come. Check this out. See, he's pretending to be a robot there. Make it stop. That's, that's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> He's pretty cool. schadenfreude. That's what that was. Um,
0: yeah, so on that
2: note, let's kill Before this. Before we do step.
0: that, I want to tie up all this ends. When I was talking about that four blonde singer on, other your the genre was apparently called foxcore.
1: Falsecore?
0: Foxcore. Foxcore. So uh, it was a term coined by Thurston Moore in the early 90s to describe a wave of loud and aggressive female-fronted bands that was occurring at the time.
2: Thurston Moore got his balls heavily booted for that, by the way. Like, he was seriously
0: yeah. slapped in the dish by the right girls. So. Yep. But it contains a lot of right girl bands, in Bucky PD's opinion.
2: Thurston Moore's entire career since then has been trying to make up for that, because he knew he was going to be me too'd, like, fuck. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. Okay. So, in the second half of this, we are going to get deep, deep, Something deep. On particular albums. Fox Deep in uh, an album each. Uh,
1: David, your album it shall be? Uh, my album is going to be Bad Motorfinger by Soundgarden. Uh, like. An interesting and weighty choice, because it's, it's the best one. Mark?
0: I'm going to be picking Silver Side Up by Nickelback. <laughs> <laughs> you troll. Mark? No, uh, Superfuzz Fuzz Big Muff by Mudhoney. Just the correct, the correct choice. And I will
2: be choosing, or oh, I already have chosen, uh, Live Through This by Home. Yeah. A controversial one. Oh, you will
1: notice there's no Nirvana there. The Nirvana but that's not as trying to be contrary. That's because so, so, we will probably so do many. a Nirvana record on its own. Maybe, well, I think for, for a podcast
2: yeah, we kind of ruled them out in the same way we ruled Deftones out of the uh, new, new metal, metal one. To spare them and also because it means we can focus on them. I think a more interesting omission is that there's not a Melvins record in there. And there almost was. Almost there almost was, see. yeah. We were kind of trying to decide what to do. Um, but I think we're going to do a Melvin's episode. But for, for the record, I would have put in a CNL animal. Mm. Mm. Um, although we could have done Houdini, which is the only album that Kirk Cobain ever produced. Produced. Um, and, and inverted very yeah. yeah. He produced some of it so badly that they had to get it reproduced. But um,
1: anyway, we're going to go away for a drink for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Let you move your bums and get so, feeling back in your legs. But during that gap, um, the sneezing gentleman in the corner,
2: (laughs) 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 allergic to bad patter, um, is going to perform really quite exceptionally quickly learned versions of grunge classics while you guys go to the bar. Uh, And we're going to go to the bar for him because he'll be too busy jamming. Um, And we'll see you in like 10 minutes, 15 minutes.
1: Okay, okay. Thanks Thanks very much. Thank
0: you.